0: Welcome to Mutterings from a Bald Guy Podcast. My name is Chet, your host. You will find sermons and teachings that put scripture in its rightful place of authority on this podcast. If you like this episode or any, could you tap five stars and leave me a review? When you tap those stars and leave a review, that significantly helps me spread more salt in our morally decaying world. Hey, let's bring life to the dead together. Well, thank you guys so much for coming tonight. We're going we're gonna to be in part three. Um, just quickly want to recap a couple of things for you. So we're going over the categories of apologetics. The first one, uh, we talked about creation. We talked about general revelation, God's providential care. So God's creation, his creation is an apologetic of his glory. So creation is, is just, uh, it screams God's glory. It's an apologetic of him. And then his general revelation, Um, within his creation is an apologetic of him as well. And God's providential care. If you guys remember, we talked about nursing homes and hospitals and um, homeless shelters. These things are an apologetic to God for his care, for his creation. And we talked about polemic, which is uh, God speaking with, for, and against the culture as an apologetic and also miracles and acts of power. And we pulled up scripture references and we looked through it. We have a lot more categories to go through, but today we're only going to go through three or four more Um, I I didn't want to go through too many. We might end a little early, but this is a lot of information and it's good information. And I want to make sure we walk through this in a way um, where we can retain it and and take it home with us. So the first one is number four, historical verification, eyewitness testimony and evidence. By the way, Dwayne, can you go back to that other slide? This is vital to apologetics because when you're speaking with someone, you're going to be using all these things to portray the gospel to them, you're going to use his creation. You're going to use a plan. you're going to speak with the culture, for the culture, against the culture, and you're going to use miracles and acts of power to speak with people and show them that this is an apologetic. This screams God's glory. So that's that's why we're going through these categories. Ultimately, it's it's a tool uh, for you to put in your tool belt to use to share the gospel. So historical verification. We're going to start in Luke chapter one, verses one through four. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the world handed them down to us. So it also seemed good to me, since I've carefully investigated everything from the very first, to write to you in orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. Now, if we go back to that that first slide in, in Luke, we see original eyewitnesses. Okay, so... Luke is writing about, he's saying, listen, I decided to write a narrative because we have eyewitnesses that testify to the things I'm about to write you. So there are eyewitnesses of Jesus. Not only that, Luke is saying in the second slide, in verse three, that he has carefully investigated everything from the very first. So he's an eyewitness himself. Why is eyewitness important? Well, the same reason it is in a courtroom. If, if you have... Um, someone in the courtroom and they're being blamed for just a a very terrible crime. The more eyewitnesses you have to that crime being done, the stronger your conviction will be against that person. Because eyewitnesses not only matter um, whenever we're investigating whether or not God is real or Jesus is real, but it matters in the courtroom as well because eyewitnesses is a way of testimony. It's a way of proof. It's a way of factual events that have taken place. So, we don't have to say, hey, look, I'm a Christian. I just, I just know for sure because it's in my heart. No, 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 no. We In the scripture, there are actual eyewitnesses that have seen Jesus. And so we have that proof as well. Acts chapter 1, verses 21 through 22. Therefore, from among the men who have accompanied us during the whole time, the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, from among these, it is necessary that one become a witness with us of his resurrection. So we see in verse 21, the men who have accompanied us during the whole time, um, again eyewitnesses. Necessary that one become a witness of his with us of his resurrection. All right, and then again in First Corinthians 15:6, then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Now, we're not going to unpack this whole verse, but what I do want to say is that this is hard to refute. When Jesus came back, 500 people saw him. Now, you try to say, uh, that, that's a lot of eyewitnesses. That's a strong piece of evidence. That's a strong piece of evidence. We have that in the scripture. Isn't that cool? We have that in the scripture to use. Uh, this is whenever, if you, if you get bored one day, <laughs> I know we're all busy. I know we don't really have much time for this. But if you go on like um, William Lane Craig's Facebook or N.T. Wright, these known apologists, and you look through their feeds of like their different talks, atheists will try to debunk this number one, the first one, because this is a strong, strong, strong eyewitness claim to Jesus being real and his, his resurrection being factual. Um, that's, that's a huge verse right there for, for apologetics. The next one is fulfilled prophecy. And before we, we get into this, I'm going to give you a caution later. Um, but we have come to a time where if, if you can come up with a fancy date and you can say some crazy things that have some really cool symbolisms in Scripture, you can make millions of dollars off of a book. You just have to sound convincing today. And a lot of people will see prophecy in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and they'll make some crazy gap with the future. But it holds no biblical evidence. So we have to approach this category of apologetics with caution, okay? Because prophecy in the Old Testament was a specific audience. Prophecy in the New Testament is a specific audience. And believe it or not, the majority of prophecies in the New Testament were for that particular audience, not for us. Now, there are some for us but mostly for that particular audience. Matthew 5, 17. Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. So if you guys had to guess, what was Jesus's main audience in the New Testament church? Yep, that's right. That's right. Jews. Yep. Um, Because obviously that that was the Israelites, the Jews, that was God's chosen people. Um, He found himself in front of religious leaders, Um, The poor, the broken in spirit, these were mainly his audience. They were Jews. And so he's trying to show them that he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it because they were all about the law. Okay, we have that. We also have Luke 24, verses 44 through 49. He told them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He also said to them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead the third day. And repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. Beginning in, at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And look, I am, sending you, I am sending you what my father promised. As for you, stay in the city until you are empowered from on high. Now, this... We know, okay, Luke wrote this after the fact. We know that. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what we call the synoptic gospels, meaning they have a lot of the same stories in them. They have a lot of the same parables. They have a lot of the same scenes, where Jesus was, what he was doing. So they back one another up. They confirm one another. And John... The beloved disciple. You guys ever read John? You just know John was full of himself. Well, he was the beloved disciple, right? (laughs) Um, John doesn't have a lot of the same parables. He has different um, stories. He has different narratives. However, they still back one another up. It's amazing how it happens. So what we have, what we see, is that Jesus is, is saying, these prophecies that you have seen, I am the fulfillment of them. Let me take you back for a minute. Imagine you're a Jew. You've been practicing the law your whole life. Your uncle's a rabbi. Your dad has taught you the Torah since you were 10. You can, re- you can recite Genesis you know, in your sleep, no problem. You know the law. And then this weird, ugly man called Jesus comes on the scene. He was ugly because Isaiah 55 tells us he was. He comes on the scene and starts saying all kind of crazy stuff, stuff that doesn't fit in the law. Because a lot of the law was made up after God gave the law. <laughs> It's like 600-something laws, right? God gave 10. And so what we see is that Jesus is making it known, I'm the fulfillment, I'm the fulfillment, proven over and over time again. The Hebrew Bible, he intends to fulfill it, right? Now, let's, let's bring ourselves to specific prophecies because this is important as well. He was born in Bethlehem, and he did preach the gospel to the poor and broken in spirit. Those are things he said he would do. And of course, He's saying that because his audience is mainly Jewish. So here's the caution. In our context, fulfilled prophecy must be used carefully. Old Testament, New Testament prophecy was mostly for a previous audience, not for us. I've told you guys about this video that I did for Pastor Dana Coverstone. He's a False prophet, hands down. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 20 through 22. You know a false prophet by his his prophecies not coming true. His prophecies didn't come true. But I remember in June of 2020, in the height of COVID, he posted a video and that video got millions of views. I'm talking overnight. He was a YouTube prophet sensation. And I thought, hmm, let's see what I can find out about this guy. Because I mean, it's during COVID. Everybody's at home. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to refute this guy. i got a lot of time right now. And so I did, and I, I posted a video. And this video, okay, look, I'm nobody, okay? I'm just a preacher in Southside, Virginia, all right? That video got thousands of views and hundreds of comments. You know what the vast majority of those comments were? How dare you degrade that man's character? You don't know who he is. <laughs> and so, you know, of course, I've, I dialogued with them in a very nice, gentle way. There were a couple that I kind of got frustrated with. I had to shut off the computer for a little while and go back to it the next day. But it proves the state of the church today and it proves how easy it is to to look at Scripture and read into it what you want it to be read into. Um, Like, for example, do you guys remember... And, and I, don't, I can't pull the exact—I'm paraphrasing—and I can't pull the exact verse and chapter out. But Jesus was speaking with his, his the, the crowd and his disciples, and basically told them, you know, I will destroy this city, mean Jerusalem, in three days and raise it up again. And it was a symbolism of his own self and his body being resurrected. Um, first of all, they wanted to kill him because that was an erroneous, radical claim according to the law that he would destroy the city. Well it actually was a fulfilled prophecy because in 76, I believe, 76 AD, the uh, Jerusalem was destroyed and it it was a huge deal. It was that moment whenever those who were pregnant were fleeing to the mountains and it was that moment whenever a foreign army came in and destroyed all of Jerusalem. So it was a fulfilled prophecy in two ways. Number one, Jesus fulfilled it by him being the resurrection, by his body being broken and raising from the dead. And also it was a literal prophecy being fulfilled. But some like to see that and say, oh, that's America, or oh no, that's Russia, or that's England, or whatever. We can't do that. We have to be we have to be careful. By the way, if you start talking to someone that is just, you could tell they're really excited about this and they they're reading to all these prophecies, just Be mindful that probably anything you say is not going to change their mind. So just be loving towards them and engage in conversation. Um, I have not had one successful conversation with someone like they just know, they know, they know, and they have this, you know, special spiritual knowledge. But anyway, we try. We need to try. Number six, Christians as good citizens with exemplary character and love. Let me tell you, that right there in today's time, We need to be reminded of, because you know what? It is hard to be a good citizen when those in authority above us don't do what we think they should do. Amen? Yeah, it's hard. It's hard. I've shared this before. Um, There were, obviously, before people were, you know, sanitizing their hands and cleaning themselves, diseases and plagues would, you know, sweep through generations, and in the early years of the church, I'm talking in the early 300s, there was a plague that swept through Rome, and, that swept through Rome, and everybody fled. But there was a group of Christians who stayed and tended to the Romans who hated them and were trying to persecute them. And the king at that time said this. He said, "You know, I don't know your god, but your god has to be real because our gods wouldn't do that. Our gods wouldn't want us to do that. So because of their good citizenship, because of their character and their love, they showed they had an apologetic for God. I mean, imagine that. You're oppressing a people. You're slave driving them. You're murdering them. You're threatening them. And then a plague comes and attacks you and your family. And here they are at your bedside, wet in a rag, making sure you're not sweating too much. That is crazy. But it's an apologetic, and it's one that we need to be, be mindful of. Sermon on the Mount, salt of the earth and light of the world. One thing that uh, you guys do well here is you do put a lot of salt on things, but I will submit to you that Tony Sacher's is better than salt. That's a southern thing. All right. Y'all can laugh about that when that was a joke, but anyway, we'll continue. So, Matthew 5 13 through 16, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And we are also to be light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. And it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. All right, let's talk about this. This is where it gets good. So salt of the earth. How, do, how are we to be salt of the earth? We are to preserve the world from moral decay and add life to what is dead. That's how we as Christians be salt of the earth. So let me ask you something, church. How can we be salt as a church? To, to be salt, and to be salt as a church body would be something like, We have a lot of opportunities this year. I'm I'm talking with Nam for a church plant mission trip. I'm talking with uh, Stella for a North Africa mission trip. I just met with the food bank to try, hopefully um, encourage more church members to be part of that. I plan on doing that as well every couple of months to go out there and help. So, I mean, that's ways that we as a church body, you know, not just as individuals, but we as a group do life together because that's important. I think one thing COVID has taught us is when we're separated, we're not as strong. Virtual doesn't cut it. You know, when we're meeting online, that's great, but we're not together. We're not looking at one another and feeding off of one another and growing with one another. So light of the world, um, good deeds people recognize in us, and they're brought to the Son of God through us. Now, what we saw what we saw in the previous passage here, we see in Matthew 5:13 through16, "No one lights a lamp." And puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. When I first accepted uh, Jesus, that first year, I was about on fire as you can light someone on fire, okay? I was in Subway one morning, 7 o'clock in the morning. I just finished working out. And there were three people in the Subway, and there was a worker. And I said, you know what? These people need to hear about Jesus. I mean, they're not even awake yet. And I said, hey, everybody, I got something to tell you. <laughs> and I just told them the gospel and they just politely looked at me. And when I was finished, they just turned right back around and just started doing their business. So <laughs> <laughs> but hey, they heard the word that, that day. Um, and I think about that. That's an extreme example, but not really, you know. Um, I, I think I think that, we're all different types of lamps. You know, some lamps are going to be in the living room. Some lamps are going to be in the master bedroom. Some lamps are going to be in the dining room. Some lamps are in the kitchen, however you, if you like a lamp in the kitchen. And so we're all in different parts of the world, different communities, different uh, family units. And so we are all called, we have one purpose. We might be different lamps, but we have one purpose, and that's to let the light shine. And that light is the gospel message, and that's why we're going through this. So, we talked about how we can be salt and how we can preserve moral decay as a church and add flavor to the world and bring people to the Son of God. But what about light? How can we be light as a church body together? That's one thing this church does very well. Um, I've noticed that we don't just take care of our members, but if there's someone else in the community that needs something, it's, I've never seen a need not go unmet i mean it's it's really we started a crisis fund for COVID, and i advertised that fund left and right nobody mentioned anything i've had to basically give the money away um because people from this church if they see a need they just meet it and uh praise god for it that's a way to be a light of the world all right the upper room discourse jesus washing his disciples feet give you a little background feet in the ancient near east was basically like boogers today, okay? I'm serious. Like, you can just about imagine it being that disgusting to wash somebody's feet, both in the physical sense, because they walked everywhere in sand and nasty foot juice, and in the sense of culture, the foot was the most disgusting part of the body. And so Jesus washed his disciples' feet, and of course, we'll see why in John thirteen, fourteen through 15, So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Now, imagine this for a minute. The disciples have been walking with Jesus. They have been talking with him. They've been learning from him. They've grown affectionate towards him. They love him. They have his back at this moment. They think they understand most of the things he said, and here comes Jesus, take off his outer garment, wrap it around himself, and start washing his disciples' feet. The fact that he came not to not to be saved, but to save to have be a ransom for many, the fact that he came to serve, the fact that he came in such humble circumstances, the fact that he lowered himself to be baptized by a mere human, John the Baptist, the fact that he knelt down and washed his disciples' feet shows such an interesting part of God's character that I don't think they've ever seen before. I mean, imagine with me for a minute that, that moment in the upper room, what Jesus did. In that. I, I, I'm, I'm trying to imagine, you know, put my place there in the disciples' shoes, and it, it would just be hard to comprehend as, as everything else. But then we see he, he takes it further in verse 34. I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. What does that mean, BBC? That means the way that I love you, the way that you love me, the way that we love one another is the most powerful apologetic that our church can have. Love. Love is the most powerful Apologetic. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. That's a tough one because you know, you, you kind of want to just call up Jesus on the cell phone and ask him because you have this church in Canada, the police just block, barricaded it with fence. That pastor was arrested maybe three or four weeks ago, and um, the government decided they're going to block off the whole church so no one can go in. So what what do you do as a church? How, How do you show exemplary character and love and gentleness towards those who hate you when they're blocking off your house of worship? Do you protest the streets and have a worship service in the road? Or do you tear down the gate and walk up in church because it's your own right? Some really good questions to ponder. We've never been in this situation before. But I do know what Jesus said is that we of all things have to love one another? It's something to think about because we really don't know when, if we're ever going to be in that position. But we have to be honest and we have to treat the scripture in high regard. So, John 17, 23, I am in them and you're in me, so that they may be made completely one, that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Love is a powerful apologetic. Number seven. This is the last one. Personal, ecclesio, and Holy Spirit testimony. So there's three apologetic agents: us, the church, and the Holy Spirit. What you have is so evidence can be seen in the person in the church, and the Holy Spirit acts as the persuader. Holy Spirit is the working. Holy Spirit is the one that makes the gospel known and understood. Holy Spirit is the one that goes before, that convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So let's look at personal first. Conscience bears witness to a higher moral law. Now, when I was a kid, I had a severe conscience. Okay, my friends can do something wrong, and they're fine. But if I did something wrong, I had to let mama know. I was just a mama's boy. I just had. I, if I did something wrong, it would eat my lunch until I admitted it. And that's how I was most of my childhood. And then, of course, I got into my teen years, and I didn't even know what a conscience was. Um, I guess that's just kind of how things work. <laughs> but um, <laughs> our conscience, is a, it's an inward apologetic. So whenever we sense that we're doing something wrong and we feel guilty, it's actually, that's God's design. That's, that's, that's showing him in his creation and who he is because it's an inward apologetic. It's showing that, hey, you did wrong. I gave you by design this meter to know right from wrong. Romans 2, 14 through 15. So when Gentiles who do not by nature have the law do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts either accuse or even excuse them. Let's talk about experience, all right? We talked about the person, now we talk about experience. This is Job's experience. I had heard reports about you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I reject my words and I'm sorry for them. I am dust and ashes. Isaiah, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on high in a lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. And verse five, then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips. And because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. There's a couple more. Paul, on the road to Damascus, the Samaritan woman at the well, whenever she found out that Jesus was the real Messiah, she ran back to town, got everybody all pumped up and excited. Jesus stayed in Samaria for a while and many, were, many believed in him. That's the experience. We have an experience so our person, our conscience testifies about God. Our experience of, of being transformed and change, change testify about God. So we have ourselves, we have our experience, which is important. And then we also have the church as a whole. How do we know this? There was rapid growth in Judea. The life of the church bears witness. The church has survived famine and war and pestilence. The church is still the church even though so much has happened and so many people have tried to demolish the church. 1 Thessalonians 1, 3 through 7. So that no one will be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. In fact, when we were with you, we told you in advance that we were going to experience affliction. And as you know, it happened. For this reason, when I could no longer stand it, I also sent him to find out about your faith, fearing that the tempter had tempted you and that... Our labor might be for nothing. But now, Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news about your faith and love. He reported that you always have good memories of us and that you long to see us as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and affliction, we were encouraged about you through your faith. So, the church as a whole, faith. Now, a loving church is an apologetic for the gospel. So, how can we as a church be more loving? How about being understanding to those who don't want a vaccine or understanding to those who do? How about understanding to those who don't wear masks versus those who do wear masks? How about being understanding to those who want to train their kids in different ways than we trained them? How about being understanding to different cultures and upbringings and how that affects family units? You know, these are all ways that we we as a church body all come from the same area being the United States. Many of us come from Virginia. Many of us come from other states. I mean, we, you know, our church is not just from Virginia. We have some people from other places. But we, we as a church are understanding that, that we're all in this together, that we love one another, that we understand um, just because someone has a different view about something minute doesn't mean that we can't be loving towards that person. We can be understanding that unifying factor is love. By the way, um, it, you know this, but I'll just remind you. Love is a choice, not a feeling. I wish I can tell that to my younger self. Like, Love is a choice, not a feeling. Love is a choice. Because all I did was chase feelings, and um, it, wow, that did not end up good at all. At all. Last Second to last slide. Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit. Receiving, so the Holy Spirit allows us to receive and understand the gospel. Holy Spirit allows us to understand the wisdom and hope of the gospel because we naturally suppress the truth, and we need the Holy Spirit to open our affection for the gospel. You've seen it if you've shared the gospel with any amount of people. You've seen it. Those who whose hearts are opened up to the affection of the gospel, they just they look at you and they're hinging on every word and they're ready to receive it. Those that have hardened hearts just look at you as if you're sharing a fictional tale. The Holy Spirit has to be at work. So what do we do? How can we take what we learned today and apply this week? How can these categories that we learned today help us this week in our apologetic journey? Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy, Lord. We we come to you understanding that we cannot share the gospel perfectly, that we cannot love perfectly that we fall short, but Father, we depend upon your Holy Spirit right now that we commit to you to look for open opportunities to share Christ. We commit to you to look for opportunities that you give us to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world, to share the great message of redemption and salvation that we have in Jesus. Father, help us to love one another. Help us to encourage one another. Help us to be the people of God that God calls us to be. That we would love one another in such a way that the world would look at us and want what we have. It's in your name I pray, amen.